Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here with our monthly Paranormal News Roundup, and then part one of her Paranormal Road Trip. She's compiling a list of the best paranormal destinations across the United States from Salem, Massachusetts to Gettysburg and the Lemp Mansion in St. Louis. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a best-selling author, researcher, and investigator in the paranormal, metaphysical, and related fields, including hauntings, psychic skills, and protection, afterlife studies and spirit communication, cryptids, alien contact, and the interdimensional aspects of our extraordinary experiences. She has more than 65 books published on a wide range of topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias and reference works. Some of her recent books include UFOs and the E.T. Presence, Mysteries of the Afterlife, Haunted Hills and Hollows, Contact with the Dead, and Slips in Time and Space. Hey, Rosemary. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, Richard, it's always a pleasure to be on. I had a great trip to England this spring where I did some research on some uh, paranormal hotspots and uh, got to hike to some sacred places. It was a splendid trip, and uh, I'm very busy writing and editing right now. I've been following your your uh, your exploits on Facebook, and all I can say is I wish I had your frequent flyer points. <laughs> well, they do pile up, and I do get a lot of free trips. I'll bet. I'll bet. All right, so let's dive right in. And, uh, you know, here's a story when I first saw the headline. I thought, this is right up Rosemary's alley because you've written about this, numerous books. We hear a lot about uh, about these haunted dolls. And here we have this 116-year-old doll uh, in uh, in England that appears to have blinked. What can you tell me about this? You know, Richard, I wish I could believe it because the photograph really does look compelling. I don't think it's a hoax at all. I think uh, that what we're looking at is a natural camera light effect. Um, this doll, which goes back to 1903, and by the way, I have some problems with the backstory on the doll that, that I'll get into, but um, a couple of paranormal investigators uh, took, uh, are in possession of this doll, and they, they took it to a haunted location and took a selfie with the doll. Now, the doll has black holes for eyes, uh, and they were astonished that one of the selfies that they took, the doll appeared to have blinked. Uh, that is, the, it, it appeared to have closed eyes with eyelashes on the bottom and even mascara on the lids. And, uh, of course, this uh, uh, had uh, quite a play on the Internet. However, uh, if you look carefully at the doll, you can see that flash was used. And uh, there's a shine on the doll's face, for example. And um, what they're saying are eyelashes at the bottom of the eyes. I think that's just uh, part of the black hole uh, of the two eye sockets and that uh, for whatever reason, and they have not been able to duplicate this photo, and they probably never would because the camera would have to flash at exactly the right angle, that uh, the camera flashed and um, didn't capture the entire black eye sockets but grayed out some of the upper portion of them so it looks like the doll has closed eyes. Ah, 
Well, you know, I think it's so important to have you on to debunk some of these cases because it makes the ones that, you know, there's always that 1% or 5% or whatever it is uh, that cannot be explained away by some prosaic uh, explanation. Uh, here's one that can. Uh, but, but as I said, you have written about haunted dolls before. You filled entire volumes of with haunted objects. Uh, and, and to this day, uh, you know, the haunted doll it continues to, uh, to, to, to freak me out. Uh, do you have a collection of, of haunted dolls? I don't. And, um, John, my, my colleague John Zaffis has dozens and dozens of them. And, and, um, I, I've never been a doll collector, but there are a lot of dolls that do wind up being problematic in terms of spirit attachments and hauntings. And uh, I would not want to own a collection of them uh, for that very reason. Now, this particular doll, uh, and there are a lot of dolls that have genuine issues with them. This particular doll, the investigators named Janet because um, it didn't have a name before that, but they used to ghost box around uh, the doll and ask what the name was, and they got the name Janet. Now, the history goes back to 1903, but there's no explanation for how and why this doll became so haunted. But the story is that the family that owned the doll, uh, everybody experienced problems around it. They got sick, dizzy, headaches, they didn't feel right around it. Uh, and strangely, and this is what puzzles me, the family kept the doll for generations. Now, you would think that if you were in possession of an object that you associated with uh, ill health effects, you wouldn't keep it. You would get rid of it. So that's a problem in the story right there. And, and sometimes these haunted doll stories sort of get started with a little bit of folklore and they kind of grow like Topsy. Uh, and then you have people kind of chiming in through auto-suggestion. Um, and uh, supposedly these uh, current owners of the dolls, somebody uh, owned it and begged them to take it uh, from her. I, I don't know why people just didn't dispose of this thing. But at any rate, uh, they own this doll now, and uh, it could very well be that people feel ill effects around the doll, even though we don't know why. There's, there's, no, there's no tragedy, there's no supernatural activity, there's nothing to tell us anything as to why that should be the case. Uh, I suspect that a lot of uh, the effects that people feel are auto-suggestion. For example, if you're a paranormal investigator and you're exposed to a famous haunted doll that's supposed to make people sick, well, you're probably going to be sick too or think you are. Uh, so the whole story has a lot of holes in it for me. Sure. And why is it, and, and I may be mistaken here, but I'm, I'm guessing that the dolls are one of the most popular haunted items. I mean, if there's an object that's going to be haunted, uh, particularly an antique doll, why is that, do you suppose? Well, one of the things that John Zaffis and I came to the conclusion on uh, in Haunted by the Things You Love, where we talk a lot about haunted dolls, is that um, people develop emotional attachments to dolls, especially children, but even adults do. And because they are made in a human likeness, a lot of um, projection uh, can... um, be placed upon them and uh, emotional attachment and so then if there's a tragedy in the family uh, especially someone who's been close to a doll um, there can be residual energy that becomes attached to the doll 
And in some cases, spirits do attach to dolls, too. They, they may even be drawn by the emotional bond that somebody might feel toward a doll. So um, this makes dolls kind of an ideal object for a haunting because they're replicas of human beings. If you had to pick one, one uh, case of a haunted doll that you found to be the most remarkable or frightening, what would that be? Does one jump immediately to mind? Well, one of the, the uh, ones that um, I became involved in, the case that I became involved in some years ago, is Harold the Haunted Doll. Um, this has uh, a legacy on the Internet, uh, some of which may be problematic, but um, it was associated with a lot of poltergeist phenomena, not just ill effects, but uh, if somebody owned the doll, things would start happening uh, in their homes. And uh, I believe it's, it's still owned by a gentleman now, um, I think he's down in Florida, uh, Harold the Haunted Doll. One of the most famous, of course, is Annabelle. That's an Ed and Lorraine Warren case uh, that they claim the doll was demonically possessed, and that became the subject of uh, a couple of movies. Sure, sure. Listen, I want to uh, ask you about this, uh, the Pascagoula abduction uh, case, which, quite honestly, I'm not that familiar with, but it has been heralded as one of the most famous abduction cases. This took place down in uh, uh, on the banks of the Pascagoula River in Mississippi back in 1973. And uh, there were a couple of witnesses at that time uh, who came forward. And uh, one of them, you know, maintained until his death, I guess about 11 years ago, that it all happened. And now apparently, uh, four and a half decades later, another witness has come forward. But for those, first of all, not familiar with Pascagoula, the abduction case, just give us a thumbnail sketch and then tell us about this new witness. It's one of the most famous cases on record, abduction cases on record, and it's considered to be one of the most solid because the I, the, uh, the witnesses, the victims, uh, stuck to their stories over the years. Uh, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, Jr. were uh, out night fishing, and they saw an object, a strange light in the sky that started descending. It turned into a craft and landed on the ground nearby, and these Three scary-looking beings came out. They were about five feet tall. They had no eyes. They had slits for mouths. They were not grays. Um, and uh, Hickson and uh, Parker were paralyzed and floated in the ship and then subjected to terrifying medical examinations. A very, very traumatic case. And it was famous. I mean, it made world UFO news. Uh, and Hickson and Parker were on the lecture circuit for many years talking about their case. Uh, and most ufologists consider it to be one of the most solid on record. Well, Hickson's dead now, uh, and uh, Parker's getting on in years. Parker, in fact, just came out with a new book, and he's back on the lecture circuit now talking about this. Well, interestingly, I mean, here we have this case in 73, uh, no other witnesses came forward at that time to say they also saw a strange light in the sky or saw a craft come down. But now, all these years later, three other people have come forward and said, oh, yeah, we saw strange lights in the sky that night, and we think it was the one that um, uh, that affected these guys. Um, I find that a little odd that uh, now it's not unusual for people to be quiet about UFO sightings. They fear ridicule. Uh, or they're terrified, they're afraid it might happen again to them. So in one sense, it's not entirely implausible that people would not have come forward before, 
but we have to keep in mind that Parker's just fresh out on the lecture circuit again, and this case is getting a whole new renewed look, and now we have these other three witnesses who have come forward. Well, maybe they did see something strange in the sky, but we have no real solid evidence to connect it to what happened to Parker and Hickson. Now, did the new witnesses, did they claim that they were taken aboard, or did they just claim that they were they saw something? They just claimed that they saw something. They did not have abduction experiences. And um, uh, one of them was out on a double date, and uh, she said she saw some lights and wasn't sure what she was looking at because it was too far away, but it became closer. Uh, and uh, the people she were with uh, freaked out when they saw it had a, a saucer shape. Um, and uh, there was... Um, uh, an, another witness that uh, said she noticed a blue light in the sky uh, over about the area where Hickson and Parker said they were fishing. Uh, so this is not very strong circumstantial evidence. Um, sometimes in, in uh, cases of sightings uh, where there are multiple witnesses, there might be multiple lights or craft in the sky. Uh, they, it might not be just one. Um, but why have they waited so long to speak up? Right, right. Aside from the fact that uh, the uh, Parker and Hickson, you know, didn't didn't change their story uh, and maintained it right till the end, and, and Parker, as you say, still does. What else makes this story so credible in your mind? Well, mainly it was the credibility of the victims uh, and the fact that um, uh, they were, you know, considered to be sound. People, um, this was not a hoax. They had no interest in UFOs. Um, the uh, interestingly, the d- descriptions that they gave of these entities uh, really haven't been duplicated in other sightings. Now, uh, before the Greys came to be kind of like the gold standard of, of ET contact, uh, which I think is kind of a media-induced thing. Uh, when when people drew illustrations of the alien beings that they saw, um, the descriptions were all over the place. Uh, and, in fact, um, a lot of them were just one-offs, and that was the case with the, the Pascagoula as well. But the details of the medical examinations uh, conform to uh, what started coming out later. You know, it was in the 70s and really not until the 80s that we started hearing a lot about abduction experiences. Well, uh, first hour of the program, I spoke with uh, Eric Mitchell and uh, his alien abduction. Are you familiar with the Eric Mitchell case? I'm not. Oh, my, my gosh. Um, uh, we, we had him on in hour one, and it's remarkable. Uh, you and I, we can talk about it at, at, at some point. I, won't, I don't want to bog things down now, but uh, of all the abduction cases that I've, I've listened to over the years, and I have not had an experience uh, but uh, his case is absolutely uh, stunning. Um, we'll, we'll talk about it sometime, and uh, I'll have to have you back on to discuss it. Um, I want to ask you about this professor at, at Cornell University in New York who is an expert in early Christianity, and uh, she believes the uh, she has identified the true identity of the Antichrist, what can you tell me about uh, the, the work of Professor Kim Haynes Eitzen? I'm highly dubious about this. Uh, now, she's associating 
um, the uh, Satan, the Antichrist, with details from uh, the book of Revelation and that 666 is supposed to be the number of the beast. And uh, she says that 666 is the number of the Roman uh, Emperor Nero, who reigned uh, in the A.D. 50s. And um, as you know, the famous story about him is he let the barbarians through the gates, you know, uh, the, the uh, iconic uh, story about him is that he fiddled while Rome burned. Uh, definitely not well-liked. And that the book of Revelation may have been describing a political scenario rather than something religious. Um, well, I'm, I'm surprised at this argument because most scholars date the book of Revelation to at least 30 to 40 years later than the Rome of uh, the um, rule of, of Nero. Uh, they uh, feel that it was authored sometime during the rule of Domitian. And if that's the case, then why would they... Uh, the book of Revelation is about prophecies to come. Uh, and if if it deals really with Nero, and it was written 30 to 40 years after the reign of Nero, why would they be right? Why would the author or authors, um, it's believed that John of Patmos was the author of this, uh, why would that be writing about past history? Uh, and the fact that um, the number 666 is not consistent with, with the sign of the beast. The Bible also mentions the number 616. So uh, I don't think it's a solid argument. <laughs> I mean, you managed to poke some pretty big holes. I don't know if this is her thesis, but, uh, you know, good luck to her trying to defend it. Uh, I mean, the, the number 666, uh, I mean, that could apply to so many people. I've heard so many different theories. Even uh, some have suggested that Barack Obama, somehow you can break that name down to 666. Uh, I mean, do you have any thoughts on, on who... First of all, do you believe in the in, in an antichrist? And any thoughts on who it might be? Well, my opinion of the, of the Book of Revelation, um, and you know, I, I have to qualify that by saying I'm not a Book of Revelation scholar. I haven't done a lot of in-depth study on it, but um, of course, I have researched it and, and uh, read it in conjunction with some of the books I've written. Uh, I do believe that it is a religious vision and that it deals with uh, end times to come and uh, coming to terms with um, good and evil and the ability of good to trounce evil. I don't think it has anything to do with earthly politics. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised at this attempt to relate it to earthly politics. Is I mean, is there necessarily just one? Uh, I mean, be, people have described Adolf Hitler as an antichrist, Saddam Hussein as an antichrist. Uh, I mean, is it possible that there's more than one? I think we could certainly make the case for that, that the Antichrist is evil personified, and it may not be just one individual. Uh, and the book of Revelation describes uh, the beast as uh, a dragon-like uh, creature with seven heads uh, and ten horns. And, uh, of course, the serpent has, in Christian uh, imagery, has been associated with the devil and Satan uh, for a long time. Um, but the Antichrist could definitely be any person who embodies evil and wreaks evil havoc upon the earth. Uh, so um, whether or not the Revel book of Revelation was pointing to one Antichrist that was going to be like the mother of all evil individuals, um, nobody really knows. 
But you do believe in in demons, um, obviously, because you've written about it. Uh, but not necessarily the when we're talking about demons. Are, are we? Are you talking about the same demons that are described in the Bible, or do you think that there's there there's something else entirely? Uh, well, there certainly is a demonic realm, and and the demonic realm existed long before Christianity did. Uh, the belief that there were malevolent and hostile spirits uh, afoot that were capable of wreaking havoc on on the planet and with people. Some of them were just mischievous. Some of them were very hostile and aggressive. Uh, Christianity took that to a different level by associating the demonic realm um, with uh, an army of evil beings organized under uh, Satan, the chief adversary. Uh, and uh, Satan, of course, in, in Hebrew lore was uh, a job description, not necessarily the arch fiend of, of uh, all evil. Uh, and uh, that uh, demons now are all, uh, in the Christian view, are all organized under Satan, and their purpose is to uh, subvert souls and get people condemned to hell. Whereas in the ancient view, um, and in other views still in play on the planet today, uh, the demonic realm is, it's a problem realm. It's, you know, it's like the neighborhood bad guys. Uh, and you got to be careful. You got to watch out. You don't want to run afoul of them. Uh, and there are various remedies uh, that can be taken when you do. Uh, so, uh, very different viewpoints. All right, Rosemary, we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll continue on with our paranormal news roundup, and we'll head down to Alabama to talk about the uh, the legend of the White Fang. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here for her regular monthly visit. Her website, visionaryliving.com. Last night on Coast to Coast, I had uh, Lyle Blackburn on, and we were talking about Momo, uh, the Missouri monster. And uh, I was vaguely familiar with Momo, but I'm not familiar at all with with Alabama's uh, legend of the White Fang. Fang, as in T-H-A-N-G. What can you tell me about uh, this creature? A little Alabama accent twist there. Well, actually, (laughs) there are a lot of white things around. And uh, this particular one in Alabama, there may be different versions of white things, but this particular one in Alabama is um, described as uh, what might be an albino Bigfoot. And there there have been other cases, uh, sightings of um, albino Bigfoot, uh, creatures and of course the abominable snowman of Eurasia uh, would be uh, all uh, shaggy white hair. Um, but um, this particular creature has, has especially been spotted in northern Alabama. Uh, it's um, kind of uh, skinnier than a, than a lot of big uh, other Bigfoot uh, creatures seen around, uh, which stands to reason there may be more than you know Bigfoot exists, and I believe Bigfoot does. Uh, there may be multiple types of, of Bigfoot. Uh, and um, the skeptics have said, oh, it's just an albino bear. I don't know what an albino bear would be doing in Alabama, but um, I guess uh, the skeptics come up with whatever they can. 
Uh, now, I first heard of white things when I was researching creatures in West Virginia, and this is a variation of the same thing. Um, the white things there, and, uh, and I also found stories about them in Kentucky and Tennessee and the surrounding areas, uh, this creature was similar, except it went on all fours, uh, but it had shaggy white hair. It has shaggy white hair and huge fangs, and it's described as a cross between a bear and a lion and about as big as a cow. And uh, it attacks people who are out in the woods. Uh, as far as we know, the Alabama white fang hasn't really attacked people. But uh, these other white things uh, will come upon hikers and hunters and campers and rush at them. Uh, roaring away like it's going to tear them to pieces with its huge fangs, and it'll go right through them. They're not harmed at all. Uh, and these creatures have been seen and documented since uh, the early 20th century in the backwoods. So there may be variations of, of the white thing out there, and in Alabama we find it as the white bang, which looks more like a Bigfoot. Hmm. So the, the white thing in Alabama, um, I mean... If it's if it's an albino Sasquatch or an albino Bigfoot, uh, I mean the, I mean I'm not sure what percentage of the population are al- are albinos. It's very small. That would tend to suggest. I mean, if you had this mutation, that there'd have to be a a, a fairly large population of Bigfoots in order for an albino to come along, don't you think? Uh, well, you could certainly make that argument, and this is one of the conundrums you, we run into in Bigfoot research is how many of them are out there, uh, because uh, not many of them are seen at any given time, uh, and this leads to a lot of arguments as to whether or not they're flesh-and-blood creatures or something that slips in and out of uh, some sort of parallel uh, dimension. But... Um, I, I don't know. Scientifically, there must be some statistics out there that would predict uh, in any given animal population what an albino, uh, what percentage would be an albino mutation. I would think it would be very small. And the fact that it's white, uh, I mean, that, that, that should be standing out like a sore thumb. We have albino moose up here in Canada. And, uh, I mean... <laughs> You know, th- th- lots of pictures taken of it because you're not going to miss that. But an albino Sasquatch in Alabama, and I, they don't get snow in the winter, I, I don't imagine. I mean, it, it's not going to be very easy for this creature to hide. Are there photographs of it? Do we know? I have never seen an alleged photograph. Uh, there have been eyewitness reports. Uh, e- even the, the the brown and the reddish brown uh, Bigfoot, which are far more common, um, photographs of them are very sketchy at the best. Yes, uh, I remember the, the the late great comedian Bill Hicks, who once theorized that uh, maybe Bigfoot was born blurry. <laughs> I want to talk to you about Oak Island, uh, off the coast of uh, Nova Scotia, up here in Canada. Of course, uh, one of our, our most famous legends. And, uh, interesting story here about the, uh, the tragic life of a, uh, an Oak Island treasure hunter by the name of Jim Kaiser. Tell me about Jim. Well, his story is tied into the overall arching story of the Curse of Oak Island, which is the subject of a very popular uh, cable show now, and, and uh, I have enjoyed it immensely. Uh, and uh, just a, a bit of background. Supposedly, there's a huge amount of money buried somewhere on this island off Nova Scotia, 
and the exact location has been referred to as the money pit. And for a, you know a couple of centuries now, treasure hunters have scoured and dug on the island searching for the money pit. And uh, some of them have met a very sad demise, and that's exactly what ha- happened to uh, Jim Kaiser. Now, supposedly there's a curse on this money, and uh, six uh, treasure hunters have died trying to find the treasure, uh, and uh, the curse says seven must die before it can be found. Uh, the whole island is supposed to be haunted. People experience m- weird orbs, moving orbs, uh, phantoms, apparitions. Uh, people who've tried to treasure hunt there have mysterious equipment breakdowns. Uh, bad things happen to them. And that gets us back to the story of, of uh, Jim Kaiser. Uh, he was a um, very good friend of the Restall family, who uh, father and son, uh, and they employed a crew, and they were busy digging away, uh, trying to get at the money pit. And uh, tragedy befell them. Uh, Robert Restall apparently breathed some uh, poisonous gas in one of the shafts and fell into the shaft. And his son tried to rescue him. The same thing happened to him and two other workers after that. So four men died. And uh, Jim Kaiser was, uh, he was not present when this happened. He was part of the digging crew, but he was not present. Uh, He was extremely upset, and he was the one who went and recovered the bodies. He put on a gas mask, um, went down and recovered all the bodies, and he was never the same after that. He was mentally off, uh, as you can imagine, the trauma of that. Right. Uh, He started drinking heavily, had run-ins with the law. Uh, and uh, one night he went and stayed in the cabin that the Restalls had used, and he was awakened in the middle of the night by this huge, hairy, almost sounds like a Bigfoot kind of beast that grabbed a hold of him. It had red eyes, and he said it was covered with a black hair that looked very tightly coiled, which is different from other Bigfoot descriptions because most Bigfoot descriptions are loose, shaggy hair. Um, but this beast spoke to him, we don't know whether it was verbally or mentally, and said uh, that he should never come back. And he was so shaken by this experience, he had bruises on his arms after that, this was not a dream. He was so shaken after that, that's, that's exactly um, what he did. He did not go back. Uh, and nobody believed him. You know, he tried to tell a story, and nobody would believe him, and that frustrated him. Well, he he eventually then uh, took another job um, as the the site passed on to other owners who were digging, and he be, um, and um, he was never right. He was still never right after that, and he he wound up committing suicide by shooting himself, and so he bec- he became the sixth victim of. Uh, the curse of Oak Island. Remarkable, remarkable. I I wasn't familiar with that aspect of the story. Now I I, I met um, one of the daughters of the Restall family. Um, she had recently been married when her her parents, who actually I believe met, they were circus performers or motorcycle daredevils, who met in Europe. And if I'm remembering the story correctly, and uh, and then they decided uh, to give up everything and move out to Oak Island. And, uh, we're kind of living in trailers out there. And, uh, she had, uh, some, some home movies she showed me of her, her father and brother and, um, what life was like out there on the island. Uh, but she never mentioned the, uh, the, the Jim Kaiser story. Absolutely remarkable. Uh, listen, speaking of, uh, Oak Island, have you been? 
I've never been there, and I would love to visit it, uh, mainly because of, of the lore. Here's my feeling about the treasure hunting there. And, um, you know, the show has been quite popular for a number of seasons now. Um, but if there's such a horrible curse on this money, uh, no good can come of it by finding it. And I think it should be well enough left alone. I agree. And the other thing is, so many people have excavated and dug other tunnels and things. You know, I think because it's sand down there, I think, I don't think they'll ever be able to retrieve it anyway. I think it's probably all collapsed in on itself because there's been too much digging and drilling and, and so forth. Uh, but, um, you've never been, maybe it's, it's something you should put on your, uh, your, your list. And when we come back, why don't we, we, uh, sort of compile a paranormal road trip uh, top destinations, if someone wants to jump in their car this summer and hit all the uh, the paranormal hotspots across North America, uh, would you be good for that? I would. Uh, there's so many of them. It was really tough to pick um, pick a few, but I did. All right. We'll do that when we come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. Back in a moment. Strap yourself in. You're about to leave everything you thought you knew behind. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, we are about to embark on a paranormal road trip across the United States. So, uh, if you were to jump in the car, Rosemary, where would the first stop, a paranormal highlight in the United States? Well, we can start east and go west. And I tried to pick a few spots scattered around. And very first one, I picked the entire town of Salem, Massachusetts. This is an absolute must for anyone who wants to be in one of the most haunted locations in the country. I've spent quite a bit of time in Salem. Most of the hauntings there are tied to the witch hysteria of 1692, where 200 people were accused of witchcraft. Many died in jail. 19 people were executed, 18 by hanging and one being crushed to death. And it's a tragedy that just has nightmarish aspects to it and it has affected the entire town. Now, the really cool thing about Salem is that the most haunted parts of it are in the central part of town that you can cover on foot. So if you drive there and park centrally or you stay in one of the central lodging places, you can hit all kinds of haunted places just over a weekend. You spend Halloween there often, don't you? I do. I go up every year, and I do a Black Mirror event for contacting the dead, and I stay for the witches' balls, and sometimes I stay for Halloween. It depends on when the other activities are scheduled as well. But Halloween in Salem is like Mardi Gras. It's (laughs) just mobbed with people in costume. But just a quick sketch of the history here. Salem was founded by Puritans who landed at Plymouth and got upset with the fact that things were not strict enough in Plymouth, if you can believe it. (laughs) The Plymouth Brethren fled England because of the oppression they were under, and when they came to America, they set up a regime that was even more oppressive than the one they left, and then a fraction of them split off because they wanted more oppression. So they sail around until they find this location, which becomes Salem, even though the Indians told them not to settle there. They said the land was cursed. 
We don't know why it was cursed. Native Americans just felt it was bad energy. But now the Puritans settled there anyway, and it's never a happy place. They had laws on the books against wearing colored clothing, against celebrating Christmas. You had to be in church every Sunday. You couldn't display affection in public. It was extremely repressive, a lot of jealousies, a lot of infighting. And it all erupted in 1692 when accusations of witchcraft started flying around. There was Salem Town and Salem Village. Salem Town eventually became what's known as Danvers today. And there was a lot of rivalry between these two places. Well, it all started with children of Reverend Samuel Parrish. Uh, His daughter and her cousin and some friends were being taught and entertained with occult lore by his Barbados slaves, Tituba and John. It was mostly Tituba. And she was teaching them how to divine, and every girl wants to know what her husband is. Uh, It all gets out of hand. The girls start getting hysterical. They start having fits. They claim that the spirits of witches are after them. Now, mind you, the temper of the times was there were preachers like Cotton Mather roaming the countryside preaching against witches and the devil, and that these were a real danger to every community. So it all gets very out of hand, and the girls start accusing people of being witches who are persecuting them. And these people are actually arrested. The stories are believed. So accusations are made against dozens of people over the course of time, 200 in all. Trials are held where the testimony called spectral evidence of the girls is believed. Uh, Their stories are believed against the protestations of the innocent, and uh, people are condemned to death. Eighteen people are hanged, a man is crushed to death, families are ruined, fortunes are lost, and it has left a heavy, heavy haunting residue in Salem and Danvers today. So if you walk around the central part, the old part of Salem, uh, almost every building has something going on in it, haunting activity-wise. Now, underneath Essex Street, the main street in town, is a honeycomb of tunnels. And these tunnels were actually constructed so that goods could be moved in and out of the storefronts very easily. And the tunnels are all haunted. Uh, Stores are haunted. Uh, The museums are haunted. The old burial ground is haunted. Everywhere you go, you are confronted with the residual ghosts uh, of Salem. I'll name a couple of my favorites. One is the Turner Seafood um, Restaurant, very popular place, built on the grounds of the old tavern owned by Bridget Bishop, and she was uh, one of the first to be executed. Bridget was a social misfit. She dressed in colors. This was against the rules. She ran a tavern. It was said that she allowed people to gamble and play cards and drink after hours. So people wanted to get rid of her. Her ghost haunts that restaurant. Uh, the witchcraft, uh, the, the witch house uh, owned by one of the old judges is haunted as well. The trials were not held there, but activity seems to have moved into the house because he was one of the main judges who condemned people to death. So well worth a visit, just a short drive from Salem. Ah, all right. We'll come back and continue with our paranormal road trip with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. 
And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, researcher, best-selling author. And we're conducting a uh, kind of a virtual road trip, paranormal road trip across America. We're going east to west. We started with Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, where's the next stop, Rosemary? Well, moving westward, we'd have to hit Gettysburg, which is probably the number one haunted location in America. It was uh, the turning point of the Civil War, where the tide turned in favor of the North. Uh, it was fought over um, uh, July um, 1st through the 3rd in 1863. 50,000 casualties, wounded and killed. Uh, the entire town of Gettysburg was affected. It was a huge battlefield that's uh, now a historic site. And the battlefield is loaded with phenomena. I spent a lot of time at Gettysburg. Uh, it's residual. Uh, people hear gunfire. They smell um smoke, gun smoke, they hear horses, uh, they hear voices, they hear screams and fighting, cannons going off, uh, and especially at some of the places where the most intense battles uh, occurred. So a lot of paranormal investigation goes on at Gettysburg, and sometimes it can be done um, on into the evening. The park technically closes at dusk. In the summertime, uh, you've got a few extra hours there in the evening to, to do investigations. People have captured interesting photos. They've gotten uh, really amazing EVPs there. The town itself uh, also was afflicted because sharpshooters moved into the town. A lot of civilians didn't flee. They just holed up in their homes. And uh, many of the buildings in town have bullet holes in them or even unexploded mortars. Just about every farmhouse in the area was turned into a military headquarter or makeshift hospital. They're all haunted. Uh, they were turned into surgeries where uh, soldiers um, had amputations, uh, where lives were lost, blood stains that are still on the floors. Lodging establishments in town are haunted. One of the most famous is the Farnsworth House, which has unexploded mortar in its walls. And a lot of the rooms have apparitions and uh, what we call residual phenomena, which would be poltergeist effects and strange movements of objects. There also are uh, apparitions of people in period clothing, some of them civilians. I even captured a photograph myself some years ago at, at one of the uh, farmhouses that's now a bed and breakfast. And it's unknown whether these people were there during the actual fighting or whether they were just of that era. But Gettysburg became a town of tragedy. And like other places afflicted by tragedy, people, uh, including Salem, people lost their, uh, their fortunes, their lives, uh, their livelihoods. They became destitute, and those effects linger today. So Gettysburg is well worth a stop. All right, so moving uh, further west, we've gone from Massachusetts down to uh, Pennsylvania. Where's our next stop on our paranormal road trip? It's St. Louis, and I picked the Lemp Mansion because not a lot of people know about the Lemp Mansion, but it's considered to be one of the most haunted houses in America. And this belonged to the family of a German brewing magnate. Uh, German immigrants uh, came over in the 1800s and settled there. Uh, the patriarch set up a, a small brewery for German lager. It became very successful. And um, when he died, his son William Lemp inherited it. And he built it up into uh, the largest brewery in the world. No one's heard of Lemp today, of course, because it no longer exists. 
but back in the day, it was the largest brewery in the world. Now, when William Lemp married, and he married a wealthy woman, his father-in-law gave him this four-story mansion as a wedding present. Wouldn't we all love to have a mm-hmm. father-in-law like that? <laughs> uh, and the Lemps lived very well and lavishly, and they had seven children. Now, the oldest children, uh, the oldest son was earmarked to take over the family business, but at age 28, he suffered a fatal heart attack, and William Lemp never, ever recovered from that. In fact, one day he went downstairs to his marble office and shot himself through the heart and committed suicide. So the, the family business then passed to the next son, uh, who was married to a spendthrift. Her name was Lillian. She was called the Lavender Lady, and her ghost haunts the place today. Um, and uh, she liked lilac-colored clothing. And they wasted a lot of money. Uh, now, for some reason, William Lemp Jr. also became quite despondent and did exactly what his father did. He went downstairs to the same office, shot himself through the heart, and oh, committed suicide. Dear. Oh, my. One of the sisters committed suicide, not on the property, but she, too, died by her own hand. Now, the family fortunes were then thoroughly wrecked when Prohibition came along in 1919. And... Uh, the breweries and distilleries were forced to adapt to other kinds of businesses. A lot of the breweries went into what was called near beer, uh, and they started making stuff like ice cream and other things. But Lemp was never able to adapt, <clears throat> and so um, <clears throat> the family fortunes continued to spin uh, into a decline. And uh, William Jr. wound up selling uh, the business in 1922 for uh, a fraction of its value. And, and now, there was another, oh, another tragedy. On oh, site. dear. <laughs> another, another sibling, 1949. This guy was a little off in the head. Uh, and his name was Charles. And uh, he went downstairs into the basement one morning with his dog, shot the dog to death, and then shot himself to death. So uh, Lemp Mansion has a, a lot of uh, violent history behind it, and it is very, very haunted. Um, it's a historic place. You can take tours there today. Um, there are uh, groups that arrange ghost hunts. Uh, people who have done ghost hunts overnight have had all kinds of creepy things happen to them. Lillian's ghost uh, wafts around the halls. Uh, some of the heaviest and creepiest phenomena, as you can imagine, are down in the office where the two um, the two Williams shot themselves to death. Uh, and um, the phenomena is still very, very strong today. Have you had experiences at Lemp House? I, uh, I actually have, yes. I've been to Lemp, and I've done some investigation there. The, uh, it is true that where the suicides took place in the marble office, there's a very heavy, oppressive atmosphere, and uh, you feel watched. Uh, and um, you just kind of want to get out of the place because it is it is so oppressive. Uh, I've gotten EVPs there, very unusual EVPs. Uh, I I did not see Lillian's ghost while I was there, but um, I have uh, talked to other investigators who have seen her in her lilac clothing, uh, walking around the hallways. Oh my! Makes you wonder what the heck were they putting in that beer? I mean, to to for so such tragedy. Well, I know, and then for so many suicides, it, it's really amazing. Uh, and, you know, what was going on there uh, with the family? I mean, who knows? We, we, we really don't know if some kind of mental illness ran in the family. 
Has anyone tried to exercise that house? Not to my knowledge. And there would probably be a lot of angry ghost hunters if somebody tried. That's true. That's true. Uh, listen, we're gonna, we're gonna have to, uh, end the, uh, the paranormal road trip there. We'll call this the end of part one. And next month when we have you back on, uh, we'll do part two. And we'll, uh, we'll continue to head further west on this paranormal road trip. But for now, uh, people can uh, start in Massachusetts and Salem, head on down to Pennsylvania and Gettysburg, and then uh, to the uh, the gateway to the west, St. Louis and the Lemp Mansion. Rosemary, thank you so much for this. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, too, Richard. Thank you. And again, the website, visionaryliving.com. That's it for us. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>